from Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Today we're talking about things that can't be seen. Our first guest studies microbial dark matter, microorganisms that can't be grown in a lab and thus are little known to the world. Our second guest researches the way humans consume energy 10,000 years ago. The microbiologist and the human ecologist. That's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Each week on our show, we bring together two researchers from different fields, and we ask them to tell us about what they're up to. And then we do something that shouldn't really be that unusual, but often it is in the hallowed halls of academia. We ask them to talk to each other. Joining us by phone from Tennessee today is Karen Lloyd, whose recent study in the journal M-Systems reveals that our world may be heavily populated by microbial dark matter, tiny organisms that haven't been described by science because they can't be grown in a lab. She's a former competitive runner who uses her children as weights when she's working out. Karen, I feel like this is an exercise video that needs to be made. I'm really glad you're here. (laughs) Nice to be here. Also joining us in studio is Jacob Freeman, whose recent report in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences describes a new way to look back into human history, not by looking at individual items our ancestors left behind, but by looking at the volume of the trash they create. He's an avid hiker, a film buff, and a lover of all things Sherlock Holmes. Jacob, your work is anything but elementary. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Matthew. Great to be here. First up today, the microbiologist. You probably recognize that sleepy, scratchy tenor. That, of course, is the incomparable Randy Newman. And if you also recognize the song, it's because you watched the TV show Monk, which is about a police detective who is absolutely terrified by microbes. Now, check out how this all comes together. Newman's song, It's a Jungle Out There, was on his album Dark Matter. And dark matter, microbial dark matter, the very sort of thing that Adrian Monk was so afraid of in that show, is at the heart of the research of my first guest. Her recent study in the journal M-Systems reveals that when it comes to microbial life, not only is it a jungle out there, but it's a much bigger jungle than most of us believe. Karen Armstrong, this all has to do with organisms we can't easily see, and not just because they're so small. Can we start with a little background on what uncultured microbes are? Yeah, so the way that historically people have studied microbes is that we grow them on a Petri dish or we grow them in a test tube, um, and we have to do this because they're very small. So to get any kind of understanding of what they eat or what they breathe or how they act, we need a lot of them. And we need them to be in a pure culture, so there's only one species. So we can say, oh, there's methane coming out of that tube. These are organisms that make methane. That's what culturing is. And you wanted to find out how many of these uncultured microbes, the one we can't grow in the lab, are on our planet. How do you go about doing something like that if you can't grow these things in the lab? Well, first of all, I want to make it clear that I never say cannot when it comes to culturing these things. Um, I usually just say we have not, because I, I also believe that many of them, if we find the right combination of conditions, we should be able to get them into culture. Maybe not all of them. There could be some that are unculturable. So we cannot go around and count them up. If you wanted to say how many lions are in the savannah, you could maybe put radio color tags on them and, and know that you've counted them all. 
we just can't do that with microbes. So luckily for us, for the past almost 30 years now, scientists all around the world have been going out into nature or in their guts or just anywhere, pulling out DNA, like chemically pulling out DNA sequences from all these samples and getting the sequences of DNA from this and putting them into public databases. So my colleagues and I just downloaded all of these sequences, just millions of sequences, and said, okay, from all these things, from everything that we've looked at, how many of them are similar to something that's been cultured versus not? I mean, this sounds like a huge undertaking. Millions of sequences, and these sequences all have millions of letters. That has to be supported by a lot of computing power. Is that something that would have even been possible just a few years ago? Definitely 10 years ago, that probably would not have been possible. But we have this lovely situation of being right next to the Oak Ridge National Laboratory, which has some really, really great supercomputers that take up, you know, entire rooms. Our biggest, longest computation that we did took about two minutes on their machine. And what you found by doing all these computations is there are a lot of uncultured microbes. How many are we talking about? Well, if you look at the total amount of cells on Earth, then it looks like maybe, you know, depending on how far out you want to go from something that's been cultured before, we estimated just taking the total number of cells on Earth, there's something like 7 times 10 to the 29 of these cells on Earth, which is like 500,000 times more than the estimated number of stars in the universe. So this is a lot of cells. That's so many zeros. That's am- I mean, that's amazing. That's It's It's huge, and they're all around us. How does it now benefit us to know more about these little guys? Well, these are things that have been here throughout most of Earth's history. So if we want to know how life evolved on Earth and how life and Earth have been co-evolving together, then we need to know about these organisms. You know, we, we only have known about this tiny tip of the iceberg for so long, these cultured guys. These microbes were collected all around the world, in seawater and freshwater and hot springs and hypothermal vents, snow, all all sorts of other environments. Who does all this collecting? People like me. (laughs) There's lots and lots of people like me around the world, lucky people who get to go to hot springs and sample them and go to deep sea vents and sample them. Most of these things are individual studies where a researcher said, hey, I've got a great idea. Let me go look in this this one place. I think I'm, I'm going to find something that turns carbon dioxide into biomass here. And then they would go and look for that. But then the sequences that they produce, they then put in a public database from their study. Okay, you got to tell me about the hot springs. Oh, so um, there are hot springs sort of bubbling up in many different places that are tectonically active around the world. We basically have oceanic plates subducting underneath the continental plates. And what that does is drives a bunch of geothermal heating that drives subterranean currents and comes up in these beautiful hot springs that we, we like to look at. And then do you just do you dip a cup into those? How do, how do you sample the microbes from the hot springs? It totally depends on the particular hot spring that you're going up to. You have to be really careful because sometimes, especially in places like Yellowstone, which is a massive volcano, basically, there will be precipitates. So there will be these things that look like solid ground up to the edges of the hot spring, but they're not. So the rule is if there's no grass growing there, don't put your foot there because you're going to break through. So if you can't walk right up to the hot spring, then you just sort of jerry-rig something in the field so that you can, you can reach out and grab samples or you put a tube into the center of the hot spring and pump, use a pump to pump out water and things like that. So there's been a real push in recent years to understand the impact that microbial life has on our lives. Gut flora is a really big deal these days. But 
your research tells us that we're just scratching the surface and there's all this other stuff out there. And in fact, these microbes could play a huge role in entire ecosystems. Yeah, that's right. And while these these strange sort of unknown microbes are present within our bodies, they're a, a part of our gut community, something that we really found very surprising was that of all the environments that we looked at, humans have the least amount of them. Wait, humans have the least amount? How does that, how is that possible? Well, um, if you think about how we know about cultures, it's always a human doing the culturing. Every microbiologist for the past 200 years that's tried to grow something in lab was potentially inoculating it with their own microflora. And so we've just done a really good job of culturing ourselves, of the microbes that live with us. That's Karen Lloyd, whose recent study in M-Systems suggests that we might all be swimming in microbial dark matter. Karen, can you stick around to chat with our next guest at the end of the show? Sure, be happy to. Next up, the human ecologist. And that is another unmistakable voice, Oscar the Grouch, brought to life by the amazing Carol Spinney. He's been entertaining children since 1969 and is famous, of course, for his collection of garbage, which, as it turns out, makes him a bit of a scientist because we can all learn a lot about people from the stuff they throw away. And it's not just the stuff we throw away, but how much we've thrown away. Writing for the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences earlier this year, my next guest and his team of fellow researchers described a process by which radiocarbon dating of preserved organic items from the trash deposits of past human societies can be used to understand the human energy demands of those times and may be able to help us understand the growth and decline of societies. Jacob Freeman, as I understand it, this all started with a question. Do human societies grow and decline at the same rate. What made you want to ask and answer that question? I think it all goes back to just a fundamental question of social science to begin with that we're all interested in is why do human economies grow and and why do they collapse? And we're all interested in that, obviously, because when the economy's growing and doing well, it tends to be good for most people. And when it collapses, it's bad for most people. So, it, you know, it's kind of an obvious question, but really the genesis of this is trying to understand why do human populations and economies grow over the long term and what consequences of that growth might set them up for you know, sudden collapses? What you found is that human civilizations tend to exhibit synchrony. What does that mean? Synchrony is just the idea that population or some other measure, in this case uh, energy output, goes up and down in unison. And we can see that at various times throughout human history populations rising and falling pretty much at the same times. Yeah, we can we can see that, or at least that was one of the goals of our study is to begin to ask if human populations are synchronous. Because when we when we look across the ecological world in general, um, you know, mammals, birds, uh, amphibians, reptiles, we often see that they display population synchrony with each other. Sometimes that can be driven by climate. That is, the populations are all responding to the same climate driver. It's getting warm all over North America. Certain species may be responding to that in the same way. Or it could be because they have some kind of interaction with each other. So the classic example from ecology would be predator-prey cycles with the lynx and snowshoe hare. 
and the way that the feeding behavior of the lynx on the hare couples the two populations. They go up and down together with, with a small time lag. And we see that in human civilizations, this has a lot to do with interconnectedness, right? If there's a link between one civilization and another, even kind of a tangential one, they kind of tend to rise and fall together. Yeah, that's exactly right. So there are two mechanisms that I just talked about that might cause populations to go up and down together. One would be some kind of global climate driver, or another might be this process that in the modern world we tend to call globalization, but that's just creating links between populations, links between societies through either trade, warfare, it could be, it could be a negative link, but mostly through trade and exchange. And the way you measure this is really interesting. You went and looked at what was largely trash, rubbish, garbage, and that became, I guess, a proxy for energy consumption, right? Absolutely. So, I mean, one of the things we know from the modern world is that uh, energy consumption, population, uh, and trash are all related. One of the perennial problems we have in archaeology is trying to figure out uh, what population sizes were like in the past because we can't observe the past, right? All we can observe is the trash that they left behind. One of the ways we can measure population is to try and develop some quantitative measure of the amount of trash left behind. And we haven't really been able to do that until recently, I would say within the last 10 years, using large samples of what are called radiocarbon ages. And radiocarbon ages refer to a, a technique of dating organic material to figure out how old it is. If you get a big enough sample of that, then you can start to say how much trash was accumulated at a, at a given time period and how, much, how big the population was potentially. Now, you didn't personally go climbing through trash heaps all over the world, I assume. Where did your data come from? No, um, the data come from really 50 or 60 years of hardcore field work by archaeologists all over the world. It's, it's really public investment in preserving uh, historic sites and archaeological remains. Part of what they do is they take these uh, radiocarbon ages, and then if we aggregate all of these ages together from everybody digging a site like that, then we start to get these big samples that we can then evaluate to say something about human energy output or population size in the past. So putting all of this together, you started to see some patterns, and you found that the archaeological records of energy consumption in these different societies oscillate in rhythm with each other. I assume you can graph that. You can see the up yeah. and down. Yeah, what does that look like? <laughs> well, if, if you just graph the frequency of uh, radiocarbon over time for each of these different societies, then they spike and they trough at the same time. You can see it graphically. And then, of course, we can quantitatively assess it and say, how likely is this uh, synchrony due to chance? We observed a synchrony at two scales. So one is this fluctuation that you were talking about. So we could see that, you know, decade to 50-year intervals, these societies are going up and down together. But over 10,000 years is where we see the strongest synchrony, and that is where we're seeing this exponential or super-exponential growth of human societies, no matter where we look over the last 10,000 years. Now, the sun, of course, plays a big role in the energy availability on our planet. You found that solar energy plays into this too, but maybe not so much as maybe we might expect. Well, yeah, no, we found that it doesn't play into it at all. Uh, we expected that it might. 
An old idea in economics is that in organic economies or economies that are not fossil fuel based, economic growth is limited by how much energy is coming in. And we expected, hey, you know, if, if really solar energy inputs are what's limiting biomass production, then we should see that that's controlling the growth of human societies around the globe. And we didn't see that. And we compared the archaeological sequences with historical European cases over the last hundred years where you do have this increasing use of fossil fuel where we would expect solar energy inputs not to be that big of a deal because we've got solar energy inputs from 65 million years ago being pumped into the economy. And again, we, we found uh, no relationship there between solar energy and the energy output of those economies. So it, it really seems to be that the, whatever synchrony we see is driven by these internal forces of human societies interacting with each other and creating networks of trade, networks of well, conflict, this kind of thing. That's Jacob Freeman, whose recent article in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences suggests that measurements of human energy consumption can be used to track the synchronous rise and fall of civilizations over time. Jacob, there's somebody I'd like you to meet. This is microbiologist Karen Lloyd. And Karen, this is human ecologist Jacob Freeman. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Karen. Jacob said something that I just I found fascinating. And he said, we can't look into the past. We can't see the past. And I was thinking, you guys both work in the field of invisibility. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's definitely true. Another similarity just on the sort of mechanistic level that I noticed was that both of these particular studies that we just did depended on global data sharing which is like a, a globalization for data. Yeah. And yeah, we are using uh, data that was collected over, over 60 years by many people that I do not know personally at all. So it's, it's yeah. really interesting. We do have this globalization of data and this ability of collecting these huge data sets to allow us to make inferences about things that we can't necessarily observe directly. Yeah, I think that that sort of opens up a whole new possible positive outcome from globalization beyond you know trade scientific innovation as well. I, w I wanted to know, so I think this is such a fascinating study that you did with the synchronicity of human populations. It's not something I've ever thought about before, but I sort of get the feeling that like in policy, sometimes people talk about wealth as a zero-sum game. So if those countries are doing well, you know, America's going to suffer, things like that. Does your work predict that we all rise and fall together rather than, you know, there's only so much available. And if those guys have it, then we don't or vice versa. Yeah, I know. I think you're right. At least, at least prehistorically um, and in, in the Western European historical record, we are seeing that societies are rising and falling together. And so you can look at that in a very positive way. You know, development and globalization are not zero-sum games per se, but uh, they can benefit everybody. The flip side of that and the risk that we need to be aware of is that this sets us up for sort of cascades of failure. So if one fails, we can all fail. And you know that's, that's recent experience. We've dealt with that with the 2008 financial crisis, which bears out these kind of dynamics where you put one sector of the economy failing in that cascades through the whole global system. And prehistorically, we definitely see that, but we see it more at regional scales, but it's the same kind of process. So in, you know, I mentioned the prehistoric Southwest, uh, Arizona and, and New Mexico, there's this big phenomenon called Chaco Canyon. 
um, in New Mexico. But it was a big population, big ritual center, huge pueblos built prehistorically. And then over in the Phoenix Basin, uh, you've got what's called the Ho'okam culture, where they built these huge irrigation networks that are still used today and big ball courts and platform mounds. And those societies grew at the exact same time. And there were trade connections between them and with uh, Mesoamerican societies to the south. And they both collapsed at the same time. In some, I agree with your positive assessment. Yeah. Uh, but uh, there's also the downside that we... Right. That we, we rise and about. fall together. Yeah. And Karen, do we see that in the microbial world as well, where a community of microbes will rise and fall together? Or where if we eliminate some of these microbes that the other ones are all affected? I, I assume they're interconnected too, right? Yeah, well, I mean, we definitely see that on a small scale. So in an individual experiment or in an individual stream and things like that, you know, we see predator-prey type dynamics like the lynx and the rabbit example that Jacob was referring to. Um, that definitely happens within microbial populations as well. But we are still getting a handle on the total global biogeography of microorganisms right now. We're basically to replicate Jacob's study for microbes um, around the globe. Well, we definitely don't have the historical, we don't know anything about the microbes that were present 10,000 years ago. We could go way back in the rock record. It's an interesting thought. You'd have to like, I'd have to spend some time really thinking about how to access that information. Um, but maybe to some level, you could, you could test the same hypotheses. I sort of wonder, what would you say is the next frontier in microbial biogeography? I mean, that sounds so cool. I mean, that's what we're into here. That's what we're trying to do is sort of human biogeography, and there really hasn't been a lot done on that. Well, I mean, to a certain level, we see that, you know, if you're in a hot spring versus agricultural soil, you see organisms from phyla that we know to be adapted to warm places are present in the hot spring, and then the mesophiles are in the agricultural soil. So th those sorts of things are pretty well known, and we're just, like, looking at small questions there. But we don't totally understand how well the sort of local environment predicts what you see versus where you are on the globe. Um, we have a saying in microbiology that um, everything is everywhere the environment selects. So basically, like, as soon as you change conditions, then you will see the microbial population that should be there arising to meet those conditions sort of appear. And we have a lot to learn about global dispersal of microbes, mm. especially, and I guess this would be my to answer your question, my frontier is looking at life in the deep subsurface because we think about all the biology that's happening that we interact with on a daily basis. But there's almost as big of a biomass underneath the earth mm -hmm. as there is at the earth's surface. A lot of that is living and a lot of that is microbial. So do they have the same dispersal mechanisms mm -hmm. and dispersal rates that the surface microorganisms have? What is their life like? Um, these are huge questions that we really just only have a few samples right now relative to what we need to be able to answer that. And so is, is another question how subsurface ecosystems interact with the above ground ecosystems? Is that something that people are interested in? I'm interested in it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's something that we haven't really tackled yet. I mean, the idea that there is a deep subsurface biosphere on Earth is relatively new. You know, it's taken a while to sort of believe the results and to believe that when we sample deep within the Earth, we're not just pulling out contamination. So now it's, it's a very well-accepted idea that this ecosystem exists. As far as how it influences us up here, man, I could think of a bunch of ways, but I have zero evidence for almost right. any of it. So one of the things I was interested in, in from your paper was about how these microbiomes might affect ecosystem processes and functioning. 
Um, and so this is one of the things that we've been working on with this with the synchrony stuff, especially the synchronous collapses, are the way that humans interact with biodiversity and how subtle changes in composition of ecosystems, uh, thinking more about big things, but hadn't considered before sort of the microorganisms, uh, how that could be part of what's going on with collapses. Like you get the failure of a uh, of an ecosystem where critical functions that humans depend upon or human population depends upon fails. And then all of a sudden that failure can cascade to other societies that those societies are intertwined with. So I'm just really interested in kind of the functional roles that microorganisms serve above ground anyway, and how that might relate to the consistency of productivity that humans experience in terms of the services and food and stuff that, that we're getting from ecosystems. There's one thing that is actually very well studied, and you can sort of extrapolate out to imagine that there are other things as well, which is harmful algal blooms. And this is something that just directly affects not just human health in the form of toxin production from harmful algal blooms, but it also will ruin an entire tourist season in the Gulf of Mexico, for instance, uh, if you get just brown tide or red tide. It's a huge economic collapse that people have to deal with for that season. And that's caused directly by human activities. So when we release a lot of our nitrates from leftover fertilization of our farms, then that goes into the small basins and then causes these massive algal blooms. So that is, that is a situation where the biodiversity of the microbes normally is very high, but when humans alter it, we decrease the biodiversity down to just this one species that takes over and ruins our, economy, our local economy for a season. Everything is so interconnected, and I'm really glad I was able to connect you two together, but unfortunately, we're almost out of time. Jacob Freeman, thanks for joining us on Undisciplined. My pleasure to be here, Matthew. Thank you. And Karen Lloyd, thank you. Thanks so much. It was fun.